how do we as teachers orchestrate opportunities that kids can jump into and be invited into and build into something that feels like they invented it because it's by inventing it yourself that you actually grow your own mind it's not what i do to you it's how you think and feel that will grow your own brain and mind and welcome ladies and gentlemen boys and girls guys gals and non-binary pals to another episode of all the above the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. This was my 16th year in the classroom, although I'm on summer break now. And this, of course, is all of the above. Your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to the world of education. If you are new to the show, we appreciate having you here. If you like what you see, please consider giving us that, that thumbs up and, and that subscribe. If you are listening to the podcast on the go, please consider rating us and reviewing us when you have a moment so that we can hop up in more educators' algorithms and all that stuff so that they could see our show and listen to it and be part of this this learning and this deep diving into matters of education. Now, Jeff, we have a lot going on in the world right now between pandemic and, and uprising and just like economic strife and all that, there's so much going on. What are we gonna talk about? What's on the agenda for today? Because of course we can't cover everything and I'm curious, what are we going to explore in this episode? Well, man, well, as usual, we got a good one for folks. And today I'm especially excited because, you know, I consider myself a, a card carrying member of the nerd club. And today we have on someone who is my absolute favorite kind of nerd. You know, some folks, they, they go into academia and they, they pontificate from the ivory tower, but their research may or may not actually have any relevance to regular life. And this is someone whose work has everything to do with regular life, with our lived experience in the world, and frankly, as educators, with the heart and substance of our profession. So today's guest is going to be Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Uh, you may have seen her TED Talks online, but she is a neuroscientist and professor of psychology and education at uh, the University of Southern California, who's gonna talk to us about the neuroscience of learning, and especially in this distance learning context, gonna help us unpack what some of the implications are for how we can actually get to deeper learning when we're trying to do it through a screen with everyone separated. So it's gonna be a good one. You definitely don't wanna miss it. Nice, nice. Man, sounds like we're about to nerd out in this episode. I love it, I love it. All right, but first folks, let's take a look at recent headlines in education in a segment that we like to call the Do Now. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at a few headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, you know, I think we have come upon the end of the school year. And uh, even though, you know, high stakes standardized testing in lots of places has been abandoned for this year, uh, Good. it would... <laughs> It would only be fitting that we do some summative assessment today. So we got a we got a pop quiz. Thinking caps on, folks. Pop quiz time. All right, pop quiz, pop quiz. All right, Jeff. I have a quiz question for you. First question: When schools do reopen, whenever that might be, everybody will be welcomed back onto campus, except for who? Mm. Mm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with my 
my perpetual answer to this question, which is Betsy DeVos. Wow, Jeff. Am, am I right? To, you just had to bring her up. You just had to find a way to, to bring her up in this episode. Uh, you know, I mean, look, man, it is what it is, right? I, you know, <laughs> she, she made her own bed and she can lie in it forever as far as I'm concerned. Right. All right. So, um, yeah, maybe she will or will not be welcome back on. I don't know if she does. She does she even try to visit campuses anymore after Probably being not. like booed Probably so not. so often? <laughs> How many times can you have an auditorium full of people boo you and turn their back on you before you realize maybe I should just stop coming? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So in any case, not her. Um, the correct answer for this question is the um, local police force. Mm. Now, of course, this comes on the heels of of all that has happened in in regards to the reaction to the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. Now, Minneapolis Public Schools has severed its relationship with the city's police department in response to that killing. The district has decided that it will cease negotiations with the department and the superintendent, Ed Graff, has to come up with a new plan for school safety by the board's August 18th meeting. All right, so Minneapolis Public Schools has decided they are no longer going to have Minneapolis, Minneapolis PD on their campuses. This decision was reached a few days after the University of Minnesota decided to curb its relationship with Minneapolis uh, police following George Floyd's murder. University of Minnesota President Joan Gable announced the school will no longer use the Minneapolis PD for large events such as, such as football games, concerts, and ceremonies. Since these decisions, other districts around the nation have similarly motioned to rethink their relationships with local PD. And Jeff, it's looking like more and more school districts, when, whenever we reopen, whether that be this fall or some other time, more and more school districts are going to have campuses that no longer include local police presence. What do you think about that, Jeff? I love it. I absolutely love it. Could not be happier. And I think both from the standpoint of where we are investing public dollars um, and from the standpoint of the impact it's going to have on students' feeling of safety in our schools, there's absolutely no reason to have these massive investments in policing uh, that are present in our schools. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a statement from a Minneapolis school board member that I think perfectly captures it. So school board member Kimberly uh, Caprini in Minneapolis said during a recent meeting where this decision was made, quote, I firmly believe that it is completely unnatural to have police in schools, end quote. And I think that that is it, right? Like it's unnatural. Right. We are supervising children by definition, in school and educating and developing children, the mistakes that they make in there are not matters of criminal prosecution and that sort of thing. So good riddance, glad to see him go, especially in the case of Minneapolis PD, but I think in general nationwide, right here in LA, for example, we have massive spending on school police. That is resources we could better allocate uh, to actually supporting the needs of young people in the community. So props to Minneapolis, props to all these districts. Let's spread it far and wide. Absolutely. We've done stories in the past of uh, police actually arresting students. Well, I think one uh, six-year-old girl, I think, was one of the stories that we reported on a long time ago. Um, and it's just like crazy that we would need real police in schools for basic school infractions. Like, it's just not needed. You're right. Let's 
divert that resource to something more uh, more helpful for our students and helpful for our education. And Jeff, I also want to point out, I tried my best to get through that story um, and pronounce Minneapolis correct because I'm one of the <laughs> ones who grew up saying Minneapolis. Uh -huh. I don't know where that came from, but I saw you go hard on Twitter for yeah, somebody man. pronouncing it Minneapolis. <laughs> I don't know, maybe because there is an Annapolis in Maryland, so Minneapolis like, is the natural... For me, I don't know, but I, th I, I, I think try it's hard Indianapolis say it right. that uh, that ruined it for all of us, man. It's it's Indianapolis that uh, oh, there you go. Trips yeah, up. see, yeah, I don't, yeah. forgive me, I'm a California boy, uh -huh. um, but uh -huh. yeah, I try my best, man. I try my best. <laughs> uh, Our next quiz question. I, what I we do got? appreciate what we got? you uh, you you doing the self correction though, man. From for all Midwesterners to you, thank you, <laughs> well. <laughs> yes, man. Yes. All right. So next up, folks, next pop quiz question, Manuel, here we go. Uh, what's fun, addictive, and might be blinding your kids? Hmm. Fun, addictive, and blinding. You know, I would say, you know, looking up at solar eclipses and stuff, but I don't know when the last time, what the last solar eclipse was. So I don't know, Jeff. Yeah, well, I remember when Donald Trump looked up at the, I was the eclipse like a year ago or whatever. His childlike <laughs> look at, directly at the sun. Yes, I don't know if that's an addictive activity, but if you're a low-functioning white man who's president of the United States, it could be. So, you know, maybe yeah. maybe someone out there can study that for us. Uh, but, Manuel, the correct answer is screen time. Screen time. Hmm. Chromebooks, iPads, all the ways in which kids are actually engaging in school right now. Um, and this is a really fascinating study that was recently published in The Conversation, uh, written by Xu Fang Shi, uh, who's a behavioral health professor, and Olivia Killeen, who is an ophthalmology resident, uh, both at the University of Michigan. And they made the case that with schools shifting their entire model to online learning, uh, children are spending more time in front of computer screens. And many parents are also relaxing their normal screen time rules for TV, video games, etc., uh, in order to help kid, keep kids occupied throughout the day. So the combination of this, more screen time and also less time outside, of course, we've been in quarantine, right, um, that this may be particularly harmful to children's vision and put them at higher risk of developing myopia, which is the fancy medical term for nearsightedness. Now, nearsightedness is very common in America. We have about uh, roughly 40% of people who have some form um, of nearsightedness, not everyone requiring glasses, but it's certainly very common. Um, and the, the scientists have uh, discovered and revealed that there's a whole body of research showing that increased screen time, and in particular screen time where you're reading something very close to your eyes, uh, is something that actually makes myopia worse. And you might be thinking, well, okay, people just get glasses, but... Um, Severe cases of myopia can actually worsen over the course of a person's lifetime, leading to several different con conditions which can cause blindness. So, Manuel, um, I think this is one of those things that everybody like kind of intuitively knows, you know, like don't don't sit so close to the TV or, you know, right. move that back from your eyes in some way. But now that school is all about screen time, um, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's one of those things, like, what am I supposed to say? Like, oh, we shouldn't be on screen so much? Like, that cat is out of the bag. There's no there's no going back. Yeah. Um, pandemic or not, screen time was on, on the rise. I know uh, my school being a one-to-one -one school, kids, you know, even within class, in-person class, 
Chromebooks were like right there in front of kids. So I mean, I, I there's no going back from that. I don't think. I think we are we are here with screens for the long run, and by long run, I mean until something's developed to where it's like inside our brain, and we're not having to look <laughs> at a physical screen anymore because oh, we're man. not we're not going to go back to the old school. That's old school that's style. not dystopian at all, Manuel. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I'm telling you, you don't think someone right now is trying to figure out how to make that happen? Like you see that in like show like Black Mirror and other shows, like yeah. something like that. So um, that's where we're headed. But in any case, as far as the damage that screen time does to you know kids eyes i think that's something that we're just obviously going to see more of and if it's hurting the eyes in those ways imagine what it's doing to other things that we can't see such as like just actual like brain waves and how people think and how people construct things uh, i mean i think just any adult anybody our age around our age and older has has looked at a kid playing on his or her iPad and thought like, wow, they are spending a lot of time on that device. When I was that age, I was outside riding my bike, riding my bike, running around. And, um, and it's just a different, different reality now. I would say that, I will say that as the resident wearer of glasses on this show, there's nothing wrong with glasses, but I am more concerned with the fact that we are removing ourselves from the physical world and diving deep into this digital space. And I think a lot of, you know, I hear stories from folks who have kids and, and they say their kids would rather be on the iPad than go outside. And I think that's the the new reality. And it's scary to me. Um, but, you know, I don't think there's, there's no going back. And the pandemic, yeah. I think, only sped that up. But we were ahead of that direction regardless, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think if there is a silver lining in this, uh, the good news is that the researchers also found, and, and apparently there have been a number of studies demonstrating this, uh, not only here in America, but, but across the world, um, that adding more outdoor time uh, to students' lives actually slows the progression of myopia. And uh, some of the studies suggested that as little as 40 minutes of outdoor time a day reduced the development of nearsightedness in six-year-olds um, over a study that looked at the progression of it over a three-year period of time. So, um, you know, I think also in a funny way, the like intuitive thing that parents and adults know <laughs> Which is you shouldn't be on that you know device quite as much right. as you are, and you need to be outside running around. Um, yes, you do, right? And it is good not only for children's health in all the you know sort of cardiovascular muscle muscle development, um, you know, and hand eye coordination, right? But also it's good for your eyesight. So uh, I think that the message here is parents, um, you know. Put them on the screen when you need to, and the rest of the time, send their butts outside to play, man. Uh, you know, man, they're gonna stand outside looking at their phones, man. Come on now. You know what? And I'm you know, we're 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 not gonna have recess anymore. You you already know schools and school districts are gonna move towards reducing recess because we got to catch up for all the lost time during the pandemic and all that. So, oh man. Uh, I, I I appreciate your optimism, but nah, this is not going in in a positive direction. Send them outside, unstructured play outside. That's that's the cure, man. Man. Cool. All right. Um, I think that's going to be it for, for today's headlines, Jeff, because we're about to nerd out and this is going to be a, a deep dive into the science yeah. of the neuroscience, really, of, of learning. And um, let's go ahead and transition to that segment, which will be our seminar for today. All right. And that's up next. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar, and I am thrilled to have with us uh, just an incredible guest, uh, someone who's going to help us 
I think really bridge an important gap between what folks are learning in higher education about how the human mind and brain works and how that should inform learning in schools and those of us who are practitioners in K-12 schools and are doing the work on a daily basis, whether it be uh, you know, in person as we were used to or this new work via distance learning with young people each and every day. Our guest is Mary Helen Imordino Yang. Uh, welcome, Mary Helen, to All the Above. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about Mary Helen. Um, Mary Helen is, uh, she studies, excuse me, the psychological and neurobiological basis of social emotion, self-awareness, and culture, and their implications for learning, development, and schools. She is a professor of education, psychology, and neuroscience at the University of Southern California. She is currently launching CANDLE, which is the Center for Effective Neuroscience Development, Learning, and Education, also at USC. She has served as the president of the International Mind, Brain, and Education Society, was a distinguished scientist on the Aspen Institute's National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development, and she was appointed to the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine's Committee on the Science and Practice of Learning. Professor Imordino Yang serves as a scientific advisor to several Los Angeles area schools and districts, is the author of numerous scholarly articles, including an article in the current issue of ASCD's Education Leadership, along with Doug Connect. And if you Google her, you can see all of her very interesting, fascinating TED Talks online. So welcome, Mary Helen. So excited to have you with us today. And I'm going to hand it over to Manuel for our first question. Mary Helen, thank you so much for being here today. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you're the first individual we've had from USC. And um, you know, listeners and viewers of our show know that we're we're partial to UCLA, but we very much appreciate you taking the time <laughs> okay. out to join us here. Well, um, we're trying to build today. some liaisons between the education school <laughs> the two departments, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, all right, so I'm a high school history teacher, and if I were to base my teaching on how I was taught history, um, I would believe that I'm supposed to lecture and give dates and students write notes and study those notes and take a test. Um, but you have said that we feel, therefore we learn. And I, I'm wondering what you mean by that and how that challenges our traditional notions of how students learn. Yeah, well, that is like the fundamental question, Manuel. Um, and so what we've been studying is the way that our mechanisms of consciousness and survival, like the, the, the really the stuff that keeps us alive in our brain that we think of as reptilian, you know, as like shared with alligators, um, is, is actually deeply involved in motivating the learning process. So what we're finding is that when people really sit with information and digest it and make meaning out of it for themselves, construct it into a kind of story that really connects to uh, ideas that they care about, that is much more powerful way for the brain to, first of all, make memories and also build knowledge, build real actionable skills for thinking about new situations in the world. Um, I, I think one of the big insights that the science is showing us is just how fundamentally emotional our cognition is, that our thinking never happens in the absence of emotion. And when we study thinking 
as if it didn't have emotion in it. What we're really doing is just ignoring half of the puzzle rather than studying only thinking. And so I think by acknowledging and really, you know, embracing the deep emotional connections that people build to scholarly material and dispositions for mind that they can develop over time, thinking in really deep, personal and, and uh, scholarly ways about, for example, history is the way that we're actually gonna do what school is really for, which is not just produce a bunch of people who can regurgitate dates and facts as if that even really happened, right? Who remembers the history they learned that way? Not very many people, right? But, but actually can do something much more important, which is learn from history to be able to become a good citizen now, to use the lessons from history to make decisions about and interpretations about what's happening in our political uh, and natural worlds now. And, and that's what we actually need education to do. So on many different fronts, it's just much more effective to embrace and start to understand and leverage the emotional connections that learning has rather than pretend like they don't exist and like they're in the way of real thinking and learning and like the real scholarly rigorous stuff is somehow divorced from our own personal meaning making or our own internal stories that we construct about the experience of thinking in that, in that domain. Mm. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about that, Mary Helen, because uh, you know obviously we're in we're in the midst of such a, just a wild and crazy time in yeah. human history right now with right. a global On pandemic. So with here, you know, here in the United States, in my you know in my hometown of, uh, of Minneapolis, there being you know deep social unrest around yeah. you know uh, police brutality and, and structural racism, right. and uh, you know I think what you're what I'm taking from what you're saying is certainly, you know, making me making me think that the actual work of school around educate, educating kids about what is happening and how to make sense of it is not only just relevant because it's, you know, it's the current events that are happening right now, right. but is also critical to their ability to actually do the kind of sophisticated thinking about it that we want them to do. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better. I mean, the idea is that, you know, we need to really rethink and it's kind of being shoved under our noses right now, um, in part because of the, the pandemic, in part because of the civil unrest, in part because of the political climate. And these things are all kind of interrelated with each other, right? Um, but all of these factors and the, and the deep structural inequities and racism that exists in our world and in our society, all of these things are kind of bubbling up. And the only way we can really productively deal with them is to think about them in integrated system-wide kinds of ways. And that kind of cognition is deeply emotional. It's deeply cultural. It, it really sets people off, but it also really makes change happen because it's not just superficial changes in actions or, or structures or policies. It's actually dealing with the deeper seated issues of how we understand our own role in the world and how we build a society that can live out the values that we strive for. So something that's interesting about doing that work in this context, Mary Helen, is that obviously schools, uh, universities included right now across the country are, are pretty much all closed and uh, have engaged in you know, the shift to distance learning. And I'm wondering, you know, as we carry out school in this way, where a lot of the kind of social and relational 
um, and and therefore some of the you know emotional connection parts of learning right. are are perhaps gone or perhaps even just more difficult uh, to, to to implement. Um, what do you think some of the effects of this are likely to be on students' learning, and what should we be kind of on the lookout for as potentially any negative side effects uh, of this shift, and how we might compensate for those? Yeah. So it's a huge can of worms, right? Um, and there's kind of several layers to your question. So I'll start by talking about kind of the, the big picture, I think, that has been really revealed to us. We knew it was there, but now it's like, you know, the, the elephant just like took form, right? In the middle of the living room, um, which is that there are deep inequities. And on top of that, there are real incompatibilities in the ways in which we design traditional learning experiences in schools for many, many children slash almost all of them, uh, especially in the older grades, middle and high school, and the social, the deep social, cultural and cognitive, you know, integrated nature, the personal subjective nature of meaningful learning and, and meaning making. And, and what we're realizing is, especially now, as we try to basically, in most cases, conduct traditional school as we had planned it by kludging it into a different medium online, uh, that you know, there's, there's, a, there's a real sort of emptiness to the, to the way in which our instruction is designed. It, it really doesn't, isn't designed around the aim of helping people develop and learn. It's designed around the aim of having people sort of you know, inculcate procedures and facts and regurgitate them back out. And when we think about really how we might re-envision, if we have a, let's say we have an entire generation of young people and we've got 13 years or something, you know, of working with them every single day for eight hours or six hours, you know, what would we do with those young people to help them learn to be real, thoughtful, knowledgeable, skilled, productive citizens, ethical citizens, and, and, and people with a sense of purpose moving forward? Our traditional school designs are probably not it, right? And, and especially when you think back at like Manuel's, you know, history example of like the teacher standing there and like regurgitating and spewing out facts and the students just rec receiving those and re, you know, uh, you know, reproducing them on, on, in paper in another form and then recalling them later, that, that that's really not getting at what the big aim of school is. And it's really starkly incompatible with the developmental needs of our young people. Young people's social and, and their biological growth if there's anything we've been learning from broad fields of science, not just the cognitive and affective kind of neuroscience that I do, but also epigenetic sciences and the genetic, genetic sciences and uh, health sciences and medicine and uh, uh, developmental biology and interspecies biology, all of these fields are converging on a really new and exciting understanding of just how deeply socially and emotionally situated learning and development are. Um, this was some of the work that we talked about in the Aspen Institute uh, Commission. And I, I wrote a, a, a brief for educators and policymakers about this, uh, which is freely available online. I can send you the link after the podcast and people can, can download it, um, called the, the Brain Basis for Integrated Social, Emotional, and, and Cognitive Development, um, Why Emotions and Social Relationships Drive Learning. And, and what I did was just review not just my own research, but many, many uh, scientists' research. And what we're learning is that 
The brain literally does not know how to grow in the absence of subjective emotional social experiences that you build with other people. We are deeply cultural learners. And, and in essence, that is the origin of our intelligence. You know, when we think about our intelligence, we think, wow, we're so much more able to think about complex and abstract information than other animals are. Where do we get that from? And I think especially before the Human Genome Project, which, which was a, a massive international effort to try to map out uh, you know, the genetics of human beings so that we could start to unpack some of these mysteries of health and disease, of aging, of intelligence, and of disparities between people and variation, we thought that we would find in there all the secrets to how you do calculus and how you think ethically and how you think about civil rights and justice and how Picasso made paintings. And instead, what was, what was really strikingly, strikingly revealed by that and other work was that we have far too few genes actually left in us at that, this time to really specify the development of a human. And, and that, you know, just how fast the Human Genome Project was over was a, was a huge insight for scientists and what we've come to realize, we, we've known this in some ways for a long time, but now is really hitting us between the eyes, is that as human beings, our propensity for intelligence doesn't just come from our evolutionary history or from our genetic predispositions. Those make us ready to be intelligent, but the actual building of an intelligent human being happens in a cultural and social space. And when our biology starts to unfold in a young child, it's literally triggered and turned on by the interactions that that child has with other people. And what that tells us is that we are deeply sort of indebted culturally to our interactive space and our world that we construct together for our ability to grow both biologically and intellectually. And, and an, another really heartbreaking example that I think lays this bare is the work of Chuck Nelson and Nathan Fox and their colleagues who, who looked at, um, you know, for example, institutionally raised children in Romania. Now they don't have these institutions anymore because of this work in large part, the, the international policies have been changed, but uh, there was a whole generation of children who for various reasons were left by their parents as, as, as infants uh, to be raised by these institutions. In, um, and then, you know, the parents were hoping to pick the kids back up again, I think as, as teenagers. And, so the, these infants have all the things that they need, the things that they need to grow. They have pretty good food. They have, you know, cribs and bedding and clean diapers and, and they have each other and they have toys and things like that that have mainly been donated from the West. But what they don't have is families who love them, right, at that time, who are there with them, interacting in person with them. They have a kind of rotating staff of caregivers that came through every eight hours, and then these nurses would then, you know, um, you know, switch back off duty again. And you know, I think we thought that under those conditions, kids might be sort of cognitively delayed or socially, uh, you know, unusual or maladept or emotionally dysregulated. What you actually get under those kind of conditions is seventeen-year-old kids who are three feet tall whose brains are a third smaller than uh, the brains of infants who were left at the institution, but who, who were subsequently uh, taken home by foster families. What we've really come to recognize is that human biology has sort of outsourced itself onto cultural interactions. 
our genes do not know how to grow a human. Instead, our genes are a kind of set of contingency plans saying, if you're in a world like this and people treat you like that, grow in this way and think like this and behave like that. And by the way, get ready to fight. Or if you're in a different kind of world that people treat you like this and you're exploring and you feel safe to be creative and to share what you're learning with other people and you're watching them and imitating them and engaging with them in pro-social ways, then grow yourself in these ways and think like this. And so what this really speaks to is the profound responsibility of our educational systems broadly construed, integrated into our communities, supporting and working with our families to construct learning spaces for kids that are built around relationships and around the patterns and dispositions of thinking and of engaging with the world in intellectual and scholarly ways that really allow a person to own their own thoughts and to build knowledge that reflects their experiences in the world, not just here and for real and now, but their imagined possible experiences in the world so that they can invent a world that they would want to live in in the future. And that ability to move through time, that kind of mental time travel that's, that's really structured around the nature of our experiences with one another and what kinds of relationships and what kinds of values and what kinds of uh, 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 experiences we want to build together that is really the most powerful force, not just for learning, but also for the accumulation of learning over time, which we call development. And so I think what we're realizing now with all of these major problems just really bubbling up to the surface in such, um, uh, in such a powerful way that we cannot ignore them, is how deeply our education system is not just inequitable, but it's really designed in a suboptimal way for almost everybody. We need to use this opportunity, tragic as it is, difficult as it is, as an opportunity to really stop and think and reflect and re-envision what we would want for our young people and for the adults who support them, and then try to build that, try to make that happen. All right, Mary, Mary Helen, there was so much in there. And, you know, we, we went into this seminar with a, a list of questions. And, and Jeff said, you know what, she's the type that might be able to, to go so deep and explore so much that these, these questions might not even be, be relevant yeah. at that point, which is fantastic, <laughs> which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm thinking about what you just said. And I'm hoping administrators, especially school administrators, are, are listening to this because Still, in 2020, the expectation in too many schools still is that an administrator walks into a classroom and kids are supposed to be sit sitting there, quiet, listening to the teacher, and especially in our most marginalized communities, especially where um, school systems are, are the most oppressive, the students are expected to, to not interact much at all and just sit right. there and That's listen right. and, yeah. and obey. So I was wondering if, and you know, obviously for sure, if, if you've covered this, help me, help me um, understand it maybe a little bit um, in more history teacher simple terms. Sure. If you were to walk into a teacher's classroom today and have a, a brief conversation with that teacher about the latest developments in neuroscience and, and what successful teaching and learning looks like, 
what would you say to that teacher to help them understand what should be taking place in their in their classroom? Yeah, so I think I would ask that teacher to think with me about who their kids are and who they are and how they are building a culture of deep thinking together. Like, let's just get, I mean, this sounds so terrible and this could be misquoted and misused, but I'll unpack it, right? Let's get learning out of the way because, mm. because why? Not because it's not important, but because we have mislabeled it for so long that people think of learning now as, as the ability to memorize and recall, right? And to trot out procedures when, when, when they're called for in, in, and fast, right? And if we set that aside for a minute, because that is, that's really not what the most innovative, productive, intellectual, and uh, engaged human beings are good at doing, usually, right? What makes people expert, what makes them the civil rights leaders, what makes them the mathematicians, what makes them the historians, the scientists, the politicians who really lead and make meaningful change in society is not their ability to trot out facts quickly. It's their ability to stop and build stories out of what they're learning. So I would really uh, also tell this teacher, like if you need convincing, that, that what our data are actually showing now, and, and this is explained just a little bit in that Ed Leadership article, is something I think amazingly powerful, which is that we sat down and talked with kids at 14, 15 years old, right? We had interviews with them. We, we kept them at the lab for a whole day. We feed them lunch. We feed them snack. I mean, we make friends with these kids and we really get to know them. And I make really clear at the beginning of the day, listen, we have you all the way to the lab and I spent a whole day with you and my team because we want to know what you think about stuff, not because I want to see how you test on stuff, right? And we also tested the kids on stuff, right? We, we did standard IQ testing and stuff and we talked to their parents about their SES and their background and things like that. And what we show, which I just think is such an eye opener, is that the way kids talk about really important problems in their lives, like the violence they've witnessed in their communities and why they think it happens like that and what could be done to make it a better place. If they could install any policy, if they could do anything, if they could speak to the people in charge and magically wave a wand, what would you do to make the community a better place? Who are you, who do you wanna be in 10 years? Let's just say I bring you back Manuel in 10 years and I say, everything's been going great for you all this time. Tell me about yourself, who are you, right? You know, who's in your life with you? What are you doing, right? Why do you do it? Or I ask kids to think about um, stories that we've gathered, real true stories of teenagers who are extraordinary from all over the world. Kids like, now we don't use her anymore because she's famous, but kids like Malala in Pakistan who stood up to the Taliban, right? We say, look, here's, here's a girl. We don't even give names. Here's a girl and here's what happened to her. And here she is. Here's an interview with her. Here she's talking about, I'm gonna to go to school, whether here, there, or anywhere, right? And then you turn off the video and you just say, how does that person's story make you feel? What, what do you learn from her? And the way kids talk across those interviews allows us above and beyond IQ, SES, right, age even, to predict two years later how their brain will have grown, right? Controlling for the starting point of their brain, we take a picture now and we do stuff with your brain, and we bring you back in two years, how much growth and what kind of growth are we gonna see two years from now? 
We can predict that based on the way kids are talking about these complex stories. Why? Because some kids, no matter their IQ, are inclined toward, when they're supported in doing so, thinking deeply about what stuff really means, transcending just the, well, why did this violence happen? Because that guy's a bad guy and he probably wasn't raised well. And so, you know, he's addicted to drugs. And so he mugs people to get money to pay for his habit, right? It's all in, the whole problem is located inside that person in that moment, right? And if you could just stop that moment from happening, the problem would be fixed. As compared to kids who think, well, you know, you might locate it all inside that guy, right? Yeah, he did the bad thing at that time. At that moment, that was wrong. We should have stopped him. But think about who he is, where he comes from. What kind of family did he have? Why is he in a gang like that? Because maybe his family doesn't want him and he's trying to find a place where he's wanted. And this is the way in which he can actually build that life for himself, even if inadvertently it's hurting other people. So how would we change, right? So kids who are thinking in this much more systemic way, understanding in a much more sophisticated way, the deep stories and backgrounds and context that contribute to these kinds of problems, those kids show remarkable growth in their brains over time, particular in networks of the brain that allow them to connect their, what we call executive control, their ability to manage themselves and their attention in the moment with their ability to reflect and build deep meaning and build a sense of self and identity, this kind of internal network that comes online when you daydream and you just sort of sense yourself in a space and build a world that actually isn't here in the here and now. It, you're thinking about things that you can't see directly or do directly, they're things in the future or meaning you're making out of the past, history teacher, right? Or you're, uh, you know, or they're imaginary things or they're the intentions behind things that are hidden that you can't see or the values or beliefs a person might have that is driving them to behave in a particular way. When kids can appreciate those things, they, they are growing the networks of their brain that allow them to connect those kinds of deep thinking to a sense of self. And I mean this literally, they're growing functional, like sort of crosstalk between regions of the brain that build memories and that construct stories and that experience complex emotions and values and beliefs with those that control consciousness. It's almost like you're more alive when you think in these ways. And the pivot that tunes a person's attention from the, let me act here and now at one, two, three, all eyes on me, pay attention to the teacher. We need to be, you know, listening for the instructions we need, right? Where you need to be able to do that, right? That, that's how you get stuff done in life. But then also to be able to tune that down and let the outward vigilance go. You have to feel safe to be able to do this emotionally and physically safe. And you need to be free from disruptions, for example, from social media and from, uh, you know, other kinds of, um, uh, you, you know, sort of distractions in the environment. You can turn inward and construct a deeper meaning of what's going on and then re-engage in the world again. And you pivot on the very same cortical tissue that allows you to know if you have a stomachache or if your heart's pounding, if you run up the stairs. 
It's actually what we call visceral somatosensory. It's the same place where in 1950s neurosurgery experiments, well, they weren't experiments, but they were trying to um, solve people's intractable epilepsy before they had neuroimaging, they would actually have to, you know, put a person to sleep, open their head, wake them back up again, and then poke around in there before they cut anything out that's starting seizures to make sure they're not going to take out the person's language or something. And they poked around and they made maps of what happens when you poke in this place or that place. And they'd say, you know, what are you feeling now, Mrs. Jones, right? Talk to me now, right? Um, Oh, I'm tickling your left foot. Oh, is that right? Oh, and this is your left hand. Oh, okay, right. And they mapped out the brain for the first time. This is Wilder Penfield and his colleagues. And what they showed is that when you poke around in this part of tissue that pivots you from pay attention now to, let me make sense out of this. Let me just back off for a minute and figure out like what I can't see in the here and now. That pivot is the same cortex that when Wilder Penfield poked around, the person vomits or gets other kinds of gastromotoric distress, which I won't you know, describe in polite company, right? It's literally your guts. We're using our guts as a kind of intuitive platform to know when to pay attention and act in the world, and when it's time to step back and think, what is this all for anyway? And our schools are really not designed to support that kind of pivoting. So the other thing I would tell to the history teacher is how are kids being supported in learning to put effort and scholarly sort of dispositions and ways of thinking, critical ways of thinking, metacognitive and emotional and ethical ways to thinking into their own meaning making about the material. Not just, you know, I listen, I produce. Yeah, so the, so the big idea for teachers to think about is what kind of subjective experience are your kids making out of being in my classroom? What are they living in my classroom? Not what do I think they should be and why are they not and what's wrong with them, but like who are they and how does what happens in my classroom make who they are richer, deeper, better? Mm. Mary Helen, as you as you're talking there, you know, a couple of thoughts came into mind for me. One is how little educators, uh, most educators, are trained on and aware of what is actually happening inside the brains of the young people we are working with every yeah. single day, and how little a part of our training um, that is, and. You know, there's part of me that's kind of like shocked and appalled at, at thinking about that, uh, you know, in my in my own experience. But also, you know, I'm thinking about how much educators know about the, the people and the kind of um, right. personality and humanity of the folks that they are working with, at least in the cases where, you know, the things are going well uh, right. in the classroom right. and how the kind of intuitive gravitation, I think, of many teachers towards engaging with students in that way is is actually not just a you know, maybe a soft skill as we sometimes yeah, think of right. it, but like is the skill it's of, the thing, of man. teaching it's the and learning. the backbone on which everything else can happen. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So, uh, so for educators like myself who were, you know, not well-trained in, in neuroscience, I'm wondering if you can shed a little bit of light on in, in people's brains and kids' brains and teachers' brains, what has your research led you to, to understand about 
you know, what is, what is happening um, when people are engaging in really powerful learning, when a teacher is teaching something in a, you know, in a powerful way and a kid is, is really experiencing it in that, in that way. Yeah, I think, I think what we are learning is that the brain, can, you know, a really powerful metaphor for understanding how kids' brains are developing especially from, you know, uh, across the whole spectrum of adolescence, which really starts by, from the National Academy's definition by age like nine, right? And go through age like 24 or something like it's a very, very protracted period in humans. Um, is that the way that a person is using their mind, the patterns and dispositions of thinking and feeling that we subjectively conjure inside our own selves are the force that grows the brain. And you don't grow your brain in reaction to stuff coming at you. The stuff around you has to provide you opportunities and contexts that are conducive and inviting for you to engage in ways that you will experience productively so that you can grow your own brain. So oftentimes, I mean, I think we think of kids as sort of showing up in the classroom as having, if we do think about brains, as having a particular kind of brain, right? Their smart brain or a dumb brain or a like hyperactive one or a socially you know, connected one or a depressed one or whatever you want to say, right? It's all goofus, right? I mean, we think of kids as showing up motivated or not, and then we give them stuff and whether or not they take it is up to them, right? We think of the teacher's role as giving students stuff. But what if we were to turn it around and think of teachers more as your tour guide, right? To your own development. How do we, as teachers, orchestrate opportunities that kids can jump into and be invited into and build into something that feels like they invented it? Because it's by inventing it yourself that you actually grow your own mind. It's not what I do to you, it's how you think and feel that will grow your own brain and mind. And, and that's, I think, both frightening in terms of what it means for how we really need to fundamentally rethink uh, you know, the basics of how we evaluate, hold people accountable, what counts as learning, what counts as uh, high performance and achievement and success, right, in our schools. But also, I think, it's deeply heartening because it reminds us just how powerful individuals are as agents of their own change. We are the vessels of our own destiny and the role of our culture and of our community and of our society, our families and our schools is to facilitate that going in ways that are adaptive, not just for a, a person, but for that person in a relationship with their own you know, community with their own work, with their own society, with their own world. And by enabling people to practice and build that deep connection and to subjectively experience it in the real power that it has, we can sometimes become frightened because we feel like as teachers, we're going to lose control. If kids are really deeply, passionately moved about what they're working on or really care about it, like it, it can be, you know, especially with really bright, talented kids, they have a lot of energy behind those convictions, right? And we don't wanna lose control. But at the same time, 
we can model and teach and orchestrate opportunities for those kids that have safe and meaningful, genuine outlets for productivity, not just for, you know, growing their own intelligence and for all these, you know, sort of cliche-like things that we think about, which are true, but they're not enough, but for actually being agents of change in their own community. Let them own and be responsible for their actions and their thoughts deeply, not, not in a sort of superficial, like there will be consequences way, but in a way that really puts the onus on them to build the world they want to live in and then to be responsible for how they do that. And then the role of the adults is to provide the, the information, to provide access to and feedback and support for thinking in those ways. Hey, did you know that when you're really interested in fixing bridges or potholes, you could actually look at material science and think about the structural integrity of these different, you know, kinds of concrete and how we might use them. And, you know, I mean, where you actually connect kids' inclinations, their needs, their interests to disciplinary knowledge in a way that actually enables them to build change. And if we think about education that way, like I said, it can be a little scary because you're actually empowering kids to make change, right? We better, you know, fasten our seatbelts. But at the same time, if we sort of support and love them through it and we stay really close to them through it and really engage in deep relationships with them where we know each other thoroughly, where you are a known person who cares about that child and that child is engaged with you in a genuine, authentic way where they feel safe to try on ideas and identities and to test out skills and interests and passions. When that happens, it's incredibly empowering for kids not and for the adults that teach them, not just because kids learn more, because they will. That's the kind of learning that really sticks with you. Think about the opportunities in your life that you actually remember and learn from. They always were things you deeply cared about, right? Um, but also because our and other people's evidence suggests that is what literally grows the brain and, and bodily health. The way in which our immune system functions, right, is deeply tied to our perceptions of social stigma and stress, right? The way in which our diabetes and our heart disease and our high blood pressure, you know, are connected to the emotions we experience in relationships is fundamental. We can't deny that all of the deep ways in which we are sort of imposing structure on kids learning and development is actually undermining not only their intellectual agency, but their brain growth and their bodily health. I mean, we really need to rethink how we empower kids and teachers to build learning experiences together. And I think there are some very basic kinds of questions that I sometimes discuss with teachers that you know, I don't know, uh, Manuel and, and Jeff, you, you probably know better than me. Like, I'd love to know what you think about these things. But asking teachers questions like, you know, tell me something that, pick a kid in the class, is better at than you, knows more about than you, right? Is just a basic way for a teacher to think, do I know that kid, right? Do I appreciate that kid's real, like, talents and interests and can, am I trying to identify those with that kid and help them really develop that? Or do I have an agenda that is, comes from the whatever set of state standards that I'm imposing on that kid's life, you know, no matter what that kid's interests and talents are. 
And when we start to, you know, think deeply about, you know, questions like, what does that kid know better than you? What are they better at than you? You start to really realize that education is about enabling young people to be extraordinary. It's not about stuffing, you know, things into people's heads. Yeah, yeah, there's so much in there that you said that runs counter to traditional notions of schooling. Yeah. Uh, so much of it. And as you said, it's it's um, it's scary stuff because it's it's handing over a lot of power to students. And for a lot of educators, that's just a, a, a terrifying notion, you know, yeah. and as and we I get that, sort of I was a teacher, too. You know, I don't have a massive, massive amount of experience, but I was a teacher. Yeah, in South Boston. And yeah, I know you gotta, you gotta, like, you're the adult there. And ultimately, the responsibility falls on your shoulders. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Ab yeah, ab absolutely. You know, so it sounds like, um, you know, as schools reopen that, that your advice would be that we definitely should sort of rethink the not just the power dynamic between adults and, and students, but also think about how we teachers should serve more as tour guides for students, yeah. rather than the the you know, experts and keepers of knowledge, um, you know, for, for us to pass down to students, um, you know, so, so in these conversations about reopening schools and, and reinventing them and reimagining what schooling should look like, mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if, if, if there, what else do you think we should prioritize in these conversations in order to make schools better live up to our aspirations about what, what they should be? Yeah, that's the like million dollar question, you know. I, yeah. I think there's a couple of things that start. The first the first one is that, and this is like sounds so cliche, but it's really true. We need to really prioritize the way that teachers and students build a culture together of deep caring and uh and and respect that's that's genuine and that's bi-directional. You know, we really need to found the learning on strong, personal, emotional, appropriate relationships between kids and teachers. Teachers need to be humans, you know, to the kids and the kids need to be humans to the teachers. And and that's that's like the ground zero place to start. And, and that's been so painfully disrupted during this pandemic, right? We've really seen how anxiety provoking it is when your attachment figures are ripped from you, right? That, that's very difficult. And it's putting a huge burden on teachers to try to maintain those, uh, those emotional connections and relationships with students when they can't see them in person and actually be in a room together. Um, so that's one thing. And, and I think the other thing is that we really need to, um, Think about making an education system that is much more robust to these kinds of disruptions. You know, this isn't the first or the last disruption we're going to have. It's a profoundly difficult one. But, you know, what happens when the internet goes down, right? I mean, I, I hate to even, like, bring that up. But, you know, what does happen? We have nothing all over again? Because why? Because we're trying to kludge together our traditional mode of knowledge transfer you know, into a different medium and use a different technology to make it more efficient and effective. By the way, give up on efficiency. That's it's a false value in learning. Development is slow. When it's done for real, it's slow. Something else we learn about brain development, this isn't my work, this is other people's work. What characterizes the most intelligent kids in just the standard metrics, the kids who think fastest and, uh, and go farthest in school, their brain development is slower. 
it's been pulled, drawn out. They're not rushed into maturing fast, right? What matures you fast? Stress, danger, right? The biology knows like, whoo, I'm in a dangerous, scary place here. People don't think people like me are trustworthy or, uh, you know, or it, I'm actually in physical danger, which is even worse, right? What does that do? That says biology, we better, we better ramp it up and get like sexually and physically and neurologically mature. Done, move on, right? I'm an adult now and I'm 16, you know? And, and so what we really want is kids to be able to really play in that safe space where they have the, the, the support of the adults around them to really engage with ideas and not have to grow up too fast, but instead to really indulge deep thinking. And I think also we need to think about what are the ultimate aims of education? What do we really desire for our kids? And passing X test isn't it. X test is a metric of something else, hopefully. What's the something else? And then we need to design educational uh, 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 strategies that get at the something else because only by designing for the big aims are we gonna be flexible when there are disruptions. So, for example, if a big aim of a history teacher is to have their kids really know what it feels like and to develop skills for thinking about how power dynamics play out in democracies over time, and let's say the tension between uh, the needs of the individual and the rights of the individual on the one hand and the needs in, uh, of, a, of a society to maintain law and order on the other hand. And, and equity on the other hand, right? If that's the aim, right? And not to remember the date of X, Y, and Z, but you do need to know those days, but you're gonna learn them in the process, right? Then what kinds of big projects, what kinds of problem-focused inquiries, what kinds of creative ways could we come up with to facilitate, facilitate kids using the resources at their disposal, even in their own communities, even their own grandparents, right? are a wonderful source of knowledge about history. How could we engage the community resources in a genuine way so that kids don't sit back and wait during the pandemics, you know, real or figurative, for like me to be assigned something to complete and now I'm done and now what, right? But instead kids think, what could I be learning from this? How can I contribute? Who knows something that I could learn from and benefit from knowing? Whose perspective can I solicit? to understand my own better or to disagree with them so that I understand what's going on in the community around these tensions. If we redesign schooling so that is much more deeply connected and infused throughout the community so that it's leveraging community resources and so that kids are empowered to build and leverage relationships in the service of their own productivity, I think that that would stand us incredibly well through all kinds of disasters because we can pivot in a much more light-footed light way rather than focusing on how do I get this content delivered to you in your living room when you don't have internet access, which is a terrible problem to have, don't get me wrong. We can be thinking about how can I just get you enough information so that you can have a rubric for thinking about, hey, we're going to try to figure out how we can help the homeless people in our community now. Come up with ways to think about that, kids. We're going to talk on the phone next week or whatever technology you have to make it go. But really get kids used to them being the agents of change and to applying their skills and learning as they go, then it would make school much more engaging, much more memorable. Kids would be learning skills that are actually growing them as people and as citizens, 
we would be improving our communities. We've got a whole youth brigade out there waiting to be tapped into who are sitting home waiting for schools to open. How sad is that, right? And it would make us actually come back to the core aims, reconsider what the core aims of schooling are now in a 21st century society. They're no longer what they were in the mid 1800s where kids only went to school to learn a few distinct skills that their teachers couldn't, their parents couldn't really teach them, like how to figure, how to spell, how to read stuff so that you can know what the laws are and pay your taxes efficiently and the rest you learned from your family, right? It's not like that anymore. Now, kids need to actually engage in the dispositions of learning in the schools because their parents don't have the experiences of what the world's going to be next. Nobody does. We need to build kids who are robust to that, who are engaged in that, who are constructing the world they want to have. They need to have practice under the wings of responsible adults who care about them and know them now. And that's what school's about. If we built that now, we would be much more robust come the fall in schooling because we would have inherent in that teachers and students building relationships together around the problems they're both experiencing. Inherent in that, kids experiencing real intellectual agency around their ideas. And next, kids needing the school skills that a teacher can point them towards to be able to sort out, well, if I'm gonna have this business, I better know some math, right? It's like all of a sudden everything starts to fit together and you develop genuine need for it because you have agency to change the world. And if we redesign schools around that, I think it could be an amazing new foot forward for our education system. It, I almost think about it like, you know, you know, I hear so much about trying to build equity into our schools, which of course, right? But equitable access to what? is always my question. You know, I have kids who attend public high school in a high SES, high performing neighborhood of Los Angeles. And I'll tell you a lot of what goes on in there. There's some fabulous stuff, truly fabulous. And there is some really, really crappy stuff. And it falls onto who the teacher is and how engaged that teacher is with those kids. Let's not aim to try to reproduce what other school districts are doing. Let's step back and, you know, just the way I think about it is just the way in Africa, they had no infrastructure for phones, right? They had no phone lines. So people were disconnected. They did not have abilities to run businesses and stuff like that. Cell phones got invented. They didn't first step back and build all the infrastructure for handheld phones and phone lines first, do that for 20 years and then try to move, you know, to go through the progression. They leapfrog directly into the most innovative way to think about it and move forward from there right? They just jump straight to cell phones. We should do that in education. Let's not try to imitate the pretty good stuff to get as good as that and then move on. Let's leapfrog directly to what we want to see happen, envision it, and then like make it go. I think that would just, this is a powerful opportunity to really enact that kind of fundamental change. I think we need to all put our heads together and make it happen. Wow. Well, Mary Helen, uh, you know, that is a, a beautiful vision. And uh, I, you know, idealistic, I but, you know, I, heck, why not well, dream, right? We're at a time in history where I think we could use a little more idealistic thinking, frankly. Uh, and we greatly appreciate you uh, sharing some of that with us today. And uh, being, being a guest here on our seminar, it's been fantastic to have you. And I think you've given us and our, and our viewers so much uh, to, to think about. So thank you, Mary Helen, for it's joining us. super fun us. to talk with you. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I just want to reiterate to all those viewers, 
right? Uh, you know, this is about you. It's about you doing it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not about neuroscience telling you what to do. I, I can't. Even the best neuroscience can't tell you what to do. I can tell you, give you some insights into why things are as they are, why when people are socially isolated, they get more aggressive and anxious and depressed, right? Those things tie together in the brain, right? And then you take that and say, so what do I want to do about this, right? It's about how people feel. It's not about whether they're chopped up physically. How do we get kids to feel connected? And then you run with that, right? That's up to you. Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you, Mary Helen. And folks, that uh, brings us to the end of today's seminar with our guest, Mary Helen Imordino Yang, professor of education, professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Southern California. Definitely head to our website, which is aotashow.com, because we'll have links from some of the resources that Mary Helen referenced. And if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about some of her work, which is absolutely fascinating, head there to the website, aotashow.com. Next up is today's Class Dismissed. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout-outs to folks doing great things in the world of education. Jeff, who do we have for today? Well, man, well, today we have just a, a collective props and set of shout-outs to give to all of the many thousands upon thousands of young people across the country with, in many cases, the support and solidarity of their teachers and principals and other educators uh, who are joining the protests and, in some cases, leading and organizing protests against systemic racism, police brutality, and white supremacy in cities and towns across the United States, and really bringing inspiration to similar protests across the world. Um, we've seen many examples of this all uh, you know, throughout social media and throughout the country, and I think this is, this is a beautiful moment, right? Kind of a, a watershed moment in, in American history where young people are, are taking to the streets and becoming active and demonstrating um, and really helping to push the agenda in our country towards one of greater justice and equity and fairness for all. So, um, you know, a, a wiser person than me once said that the youth will show us the way. And I think this is a moment in history where once again, they are, they are doing that. So props to our youth protesting out there in the streets. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, folks, that about does it for this episode. If you've enjoyed what you've watched or listened to, please consider rating us and reviewing us and telling a friend about our show so that we could grow our audience and extend these important conversations that we have here about education. All right, so that's it for this episode of All of the Above. We will see you next time.